In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about being trapped in dreadful places. I have two projects I want to bring to the attention of your ears. The first is called The Leviathan Chronicles, a long-running revolutionary science fiction audio drama podcast featuring the voices of over 60 actors professional sound effects, and an original music soundtrack. This week, they're launching the final series of the show, so it's the perfect time to delve into this wonderful audio production. And you'll hear many familiar voices on the show, so be sure to check out The Leviathan Chronicles at leviathanchronicles.com. The second project is the brainchild of author and friend of the show, Manon Lyset. It's called COVID Campfire. It features short horror stories written by many of the writers you love from our show, and they're narrated by lots of our voice actors, among others. Each story is roughly five minutes long, and they're written in the form of urban legends set in the time of the COVID pandemic. You get a random tale each time you visit the site, so settle in around the digital campfire and enjoy a creepy tale or two. You'll soon learn why everyone who listens wants some mores at covid-campfire.com. Check the show notes for links to both of these great projects and fill your ears with wonderful adventures and horrors. And speaking of ears filled with horrors, get yours ready for a top-up because we're ready to fill them up. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we find ourselves in a budget motel. We've all stayed in them. Mysterious stains on the carpet, a tap that won't stop dripping, a kettle that hasn't been descaled in 69 years. They can be strange, eerie places. But in this tale, shared with us by author Johnny Compton, our man James can at least take solace in the horror movie marathon playing on TV. That'll make him feel at ease, right? Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Atticus Jackson, and Erica Sanderson. So settle back on one of those beds that vibrate if you put a quarter in and listen to a story overheard in a room.
The numbers of the digital clock displayed 1133. In five hours, James would need to be at the airport to catch his flight home. He was tired, but he seemed to creep further from sleepiness each minute. He shifted in bed, lying flatter on the mattress to take some pressure off his hip. The bed groaned as it did each time he moved. It was a stiff, quarrelsome thing, full of dips and mounds that collaborated to kill his efforts to get comfortable. Lying flat would soon prove to be hell on his back, and he'd have to shift again in ten minutes or so, and then again in another ten, and on like that through the night. It was his fourth and final night of tossing and turning in this bed, but the first he'd spent wide awake in it. There was a time when he could have slept soundly on a concrete floor and been no worse for it in the morning. Now, though, the aches of a rough night's sleep followed him for days, if not weeks, and those accumulated pains prevented him from willing himself to sleep. Other than the bed, there wasn't much in the motel room to complain about. It was small, its back wall taken up by floor-to-ceiling mirror panes, and it held the odor of cheap cleaning products. It was a vague smell, almost inoffensive, but noticeable enough to tickle his nostrils. James knew that it masked harsher odors. He remembered the smells of some of the other discount motels he had stayed in to cut costs during business trips, and figured he should be grateful that this place was at least trying. Besides, he couldn't fault roadside suites, which advertised free cable and renovated restrooms on its marquee for being exactly the kind of place he knew it would be. The channel selection on the television was half as deep as what he had at home. He spent an hour with sitcoms that pulled a few smirks out of him, but did nothing to cure his restlessness. Bored with the comedies, he searched for something else to watch. Channel surfing brought him to a British slasher film he had never heard of. It had the dinginess of an untouched film from the 70s, back when movies looked like filtered dreams and were better for it in his opinion. The film was a reasonable diversion, though nowhere near the lullaby he needed. A small headache in the back of his head fed his insomnia and unsettled him more than anything on the television screen. He had a doctor's appointment waiting for him back home. He had already canceled an appointment earlier in the month and wanted to cancel again, but he promised his kids that he wouldn't put it off any longer. His son and daughter, recent college graduates who were sure they had the world figured out, insisted he see his physician about his headaches. James couldn't get them to understand that he could live more easily with the headaches than with any bad news his doctor might deliver. The movie ended with a telegraphed final twist. The investigator's wife had been the killer all along, but did so with enough of a wink that James held no contempt toward it. When the second movie began, another British thriller that was part of an apparent marathon, he didn't change the channel. The tone and the actual sound mix of the second film were quieter than that of the first. James had to turn the volume up to hear the dialogue for the relatively few scenes that contained dialogue. Chunks of the film passed with no words spoken. The lead character was an intrepid, naive man, house-sitting in a sprawling mansion that couldn't have looked more haunted. The scarcity of plot and characters made it easier for James's divided and sleep-starved mind to follow what was presented. The first film had layered a fresh plot twist atop each body that the killer claimed, while this second film traveled a straight road with one exit. It kept his interest, but James found his attention wavering near the end, wanting something to happen. Then, in an unbroken 30-second shot seemed from the lead character's point of view, the house's resident specter painfully ripped itself from the massive portrait that had contained it, 
while the hapless hero struggled to even gasp at what he had witnessed, much less scream. James felt for a moment that he was there along with the man in the film. He held his breath unconsciously and backed himself up against the mirrored wall behind him. The film faded to black. James smiled in appreciation of its climactic scare. It was now 2.30 in the morning and his heartbeat was at a steady trot. Might as well stay up until he had to leave, he figured. Even if he could find a way to nod off now, he'd likely oversleep and miss his flight. Besides, he was interested in seeing what would come next. The third movie opened on an exhausted, shoeless woman who limped her way through the stone streets of a town full of long shadows. The woman whimpered as she hustled along, but did not stop to pound at any door she passed, did call out for some help in the hopes that someone would at least come to their window. She went down an alley, then came to another that looked the same as the one she'd just left, only longer, then to another that was narrower. She heard something that sounded like scraping metal. She gasped, backed against a wall and looked behind her, above her. If she saw anything, the camera did not reveal it. But something, the situation itself, it seemed, started her sobbing. Don't cry. It'll be okay. James tensed. The child's voice had not come from the television. He turned and saw his reflection turning toward him in kind. The voice had come from behind him, from behind the wall. But it had been too clear and too close to come from behind the wall. It had sounded more like it had bounced off the surface of the mirror. He was just beginning to rationalize what he thought he heard. He was very tired, after all, and was up much later than he was used to, when the voice came again. You have to stop crying or he'll hear you. A soft-spoken boy from the sound of it, though he spoke with an earnest composure that suggested he might be older. You can still get out. You just have to be quiet. On the television, the woman cried out again, louder this time, and James remembered that he turned up the volume for the previous movie. Please don't cry. He'll hear you. Listen to me. You have to look for a way out, and you have to keep quiet. James slid to the edge of the bed, away from the wall. This had to be somebody speaking to him from the next room. Someone's kid who'd heard the movie and was either playing a prank on James or was just profoundly confused and trying to be helpful. It had to be that, or something like it, even though it couldn't be that, because the voice was too clear to be coming from the other room. James had been in many thin-walled motels that couldn't keep the sounds of fighting, laughter, sex, or music from being heard next door, but never one with a wall so thin that it let a child's whispers pass through like smoke through a vent. Behind James, the woman on the television screamed. Before him, the boy implored her to be silent. James stood and turned the television off. It was still possible that he was mistaken and that the voice was that of an unseen character from the film. It was possible that he had somehow imagined it being behind him. He watched the wall, waited. Hello? Are you still there? James' stomach gurgled. He felt lightheaded. It occurred to him that this disembodied voice might have crawled out of the malady in his brain that was also responsible for his headaches. I hope you're okay. I hope you got away. James walked to the small foyer and turned on the light switch, then re-entered the room and looked around for signs of a microphone, signs that this was a dream, signs of anything that would give him the peace of knowing he wasn't losing his mind. 
Could this really be how insanity came to someone? So sudden and inspired? He watched the spot in the mirrored wall where the voice had come from, just above the bed. He waited, almost daring it to return. He and his reflection stared at the same spot from opposing angles, eyes low like they were two men afraid or ashamed of making eye contact. Who are you? Who are you? Then James shook his head. He wasn't ready to renounce the idea that he was speaking to a confused or mischievous kid who was in the next room. He needed to address this boy accordingly. Where are your parents? Do they know you're up? D did they leave you alone and- You're him, aren't you? You're him. Where's the lady that was crying? What did you do to her? All right, kid. Did you hurt her? What did you do? I'm calling the front desk. If your parents are there, you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. James stepped towards the phone that sat on the nightstand near the head of the bed, near the mirrored wall. What did you do to her? The mirror panes rattled as though he'd bellowed the words, though his voice was no louder than it had been before. James froze. His mouth went dry. The mirror rattled again, and he flinched. It rattled once more, and a small crack appeared in the spot he'd been staring at. Surrounding the crack in the mirror was a small handprint that evaporated a second after it appeared. Where is she? Did you hurt her? I'm going to the front desk. No. James went to the door, reached for the door handle, and touched ice. He pulled back, looked at it to be sure, to remind himself that it was an unremarkable motel door handle. He went for it again, pressed down. It held with a soft click, as though it were locked from the outside. He pressed down harder, pulled at the door to force it open. I won't let you hurt anyone else. This is the last time. The temperature in the room dropped. James thought he felt something cold graze the back of his neck. He turned around and saw no one behind him. From the foyer, close to the door, his view of the damaged spot in the mirror was blocked by the corner of the wall. He could still hear the mirror being struck, though. He heard it rattle with each strike. He heard the small cracks splinter and sprout limbs that sprouted offshoots of their own. I couldn't stop you then, but I can now. Okay, listen to me. You've got me confused with someone else, okay? You won't hurt anyone else. No more for you. No more. Damn it, listen to me! That lady you heard was on the TV. She's not even real. I didn't hurt anybody. I've never hurt anyone. No more. No more! The lights in the room died. James turned back to the door, pounded on it, alternated trying to yank it open and force his shoulder through it. He felt a pressure on the left side of his chest. He believed he was shouting for help, but he could not hear himself above the pulse pumping in his ears. The sentences that formed in his head made as much sense to him as possible under the circumstances, but he could not be sure they weren't spinning themselves into lunacy on the way out of his mouth. Please hear me. Please help me. I'm stuck in here with something that was stuck in the mirror. I'm stuck in here. Please get me out. I am stuck in here with something that thinks I've done something horrible. I am stuck in here with this thing that was stuck too. It's out now. Please help me. 
I am stuck in here. And it's out now. I am stuck in here with it. I am stuck here. I am stuck here. I'm stuck. The door opened and James fell back onto the floor. The pressure in his chest became an enormous weight pinning him to the floor, like his heart had become an anvil. He could only pull in short sips of breath. A hardening pain seized his lower jaw. He recognized the two people who had forced the door open and barged in as the employees who worked the welcome desk. One of them, the woman, knelt over him. She talked quickly. James could not hear her any more than he could hear himself. He thought he read the words, heart attack, on her lips. A strand of embarrassment needled its way through his panic. Heart attack, of course. His exhausted, possibly tumorous brain, inspired by a string of late-night horror pictures, had conjured up its own work of scary fiction and subjected him to it, frightened him into a hypertensive state, and killed him with it. How foolish. How humiliating. If only he hadn't canceled that damn appointment. The woman looked at her co-worker, shouted at him to get his attention. He stood behind her, his full attention stolen by something to his left. He was facing the wall, the mirrors. The door slammed shut as the woman jumped to her feet and the man facing the wall opened his mouth to scream. James felt an odd sense of relief as his life drifted away and he found himself surveying the scene and the room from outside his corpse. At least it had been real. At least he hadn't died insane. Relieved at this as he laughed, almost loud enough to drown out the boy's furious screaming. open ocean. Peace, quiet, and tranquility. Nothing scary about the sea, as long as you don't look underwater. But that's exactly what divers do. That won't stop our intrepid heroes, June and Vanessa, though. In this tale, shared with us by author Cole White, our divers are heading out further than usual to investigate a mysterious diving spot they've been recommended. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock and Nicole Goodnight. But beware when you go under. You might see something strange. There might be evidence of something living down there. So investigate, but watch you don't get caught in the undertow. Every weekend for the past year, weather permitting, Ness and I have gone diving, at least for an hour or two. Last month, on the afternoon that changed everything, we'd set out off the coast to explore a new patch of ocean. 
We usually dive in the same areas because we know all the landmarks and places worth seeing, but we'd been tipped off about a great spot somewhere we'd never dived before. It was further out than we usually went, which was mostly annoying at the time, but we were told that the natural rock formations there and the animals that called them home were incredible. I was so excited, so ready to comb the ocean looking for adventure. How stupid. If I'd just refused to dive in an unfamiliar place, none of this shit would have happened in the first place. And it's almost funny how I was the one who suggested we give the new dive spot a go, considering the kind of person I've always been. I grew up afraid of most things. Dark rooms, loud noises, excitable dogs, anyone taller than me. And I'd be lying if I said I don't still carry most of those fears. Even now, as a 23-year-old woman who pays her own rent and works overnight shifts more often than not, I still jump at sudden movements in the edge of my periphery and cross the street whenever someone approaches me at night. But I've always been a good actor, and I've never had a problem convincing people of my tough-as-nails exterior. It's probably why I got stuck with so many late-night shifts at the grocery store in the first place. And probably why, whenever there's a spider that needs to be taken outside, I'm the one people turn to. I always manage to make up some excuse for why I can't. But still, I don't need anyone picking at my weaknesses. Especially when I already get enough of shit for my taste in romantic partners. So... I put in a lot of effort to make sure no one knows how much of a chicken shit I am. So, a year ago, when Vanessa, who I'd had an embarrassing crush on for months at that point, first asked me if I wanted to learn to scuba dive with her, I couldn't say no. I was practically shitting my pants at the idea of being underwater with the only oxygen available strapped to my back. Did I mention my fear of suffocation? And I hated getting my hair wet. My tight curls already required so much upkeep without salty seawater messing them up. But we'd been dancing around each other for a while and our cagey back and forth flirting finally had the chance to become something more. I figured I could deal with a little discomfort and a small chunk of debt if it meant spending a substantial amount of time with the girl I'd been trying to woo for months. I met Vanessa when I started working at the local grocery store a couple years ago. A few years after I'd moved from a small town in Michigan to California for school. A string of post-undergraduate mistakes led me from a promising career in production to a part-time job and a tiny apartment far enough out of the city that the cost of living didn't send me crawling back to my parents. Ness worked in the bakery department of the grocery store that hired me. The first time I saw her, she had flour in her dark red hair and frosting on her cheek that almost blended in with her freckles. And when I asked her where to go for my interview, a flicker of annoyance crossed her face before she smoothed her features over in a synthetic customer service brand smile. 
She cheerily told me where to go before turning back to her work, thinking she was being subtle when she rolled her eyes at me. For me, it was love at first sight. So I spent months trying to catch her attention until I did and was forced to confront my gripping fear of the ocean. As I fell in love with Vanessa, I never expected to fall for scuba diving too. We'd taken these informational classes before they'd let us dive. Classes that taught us all about the dangers of diving, animal attacks, decompression sickness, nitrogen narcosis, even freaking ear infections. The class had taught us other things too, but I was pretty fixated on the idea of putting myself into a situation that was begging for trouble. I figured if humans were meant to be divers, we'd be born with gills. The first time we went diving, actually diving in open water, after we got our diving licenses, I thought I'd be dead before I hit the water. Is this really how I want to die? I'd thought to myself as the boat pulled to a stop and we got ready to jump in. I haven't even had the chance to kiss her, but I'm ready to die for her. And the answer was yes, regardless of how dumb an answer it was. I'd gotten the damn license at that point, and I really wanted to impress Vanessa. You scared? She smiled lopsidedly at me as she tugged at the collar of her wetsuit. We'd already buddy-checked our gear on the shore. She could probably tell that I was messing with my air tank out of nervousness. Scared for you, maybe. Try your best not to get distracted by my skills. By this point, she already knew about my tough guy act and how paper-thin it actually was. But she still humored me. Yeah, yeah, you just try your best to keep up. Can't have my diving buddy passing out on me, can I? Promise to give me mouth-to-mouth -mouth if I do? She just rolled her eyes at me and fixed her regulator in place before jumping in ahead of me. I remember sending a silent prayer to God, sure that my first dive would be my last. But what actually happened during that first dive was even more jarring. All the theories and swimming pool practice dives came nowhere near close to the real thing. Suspended in the water, with the entire ocean around me. It was terrifying, for sure, but it was also surreal and stunning. The farther down we went, the deeper we were swallowed into the alien world of the ocean. All around us, life bloomed in inexplicable ways. Dozens of small, rainbow-hued fish darted through the coral, while bleach-white clams probed at the water for food, and small crabs picked at the detritus, caught in the rocky crevices snaking through the reef. Sunlight reflected off a yellowfin tuna's mirror-like scales, 
and sand sharks skirted the sandy seabed in a dance that the whole ocean seemed to know. I felt like an astronaut, thrown into a zero-gravity environment with creatures that couldn't be of our world. The deep blue surrounded me, the only sound in my ears the even hiss of my regulator interspersed with the thrum of my own heartbeat. We spent hours in the water, coming up to trade out our empty tanks for full ones and diving back in with the water crashing around us. Ness waved me over at one point to throw me a weird, organic-looking cylinder sitting on a rock. I realized that it was a sea cucumber at the same moment that Vanessa chose to poke it. Going into defense mode, the damn thing spewed out all of its insides, and I almost drowned myself in an attempt to get away from it. And I could tell that Vanessa was trying her best not to laugh so hard that she'd also drown. I couldn't be mad at her. I was in too deep. And I definitely couldn't be mad after she kissed me later that day. When we finished diving for the day, our legs wobbled from overuse, our backs stiff from the exertion of many hours underwater. But our eyes matched in uncontrollable happiness. The sun was starting to set in deep reds and oranges over the water as the gentle waves tapped against the boat's hull. June? I almost couldn't hear her over the seagulls squawking overhead. I turned to look at her, sitting only inches away from each other. Yeah? What's up? I was suddenly very nervous from the way she glanced at my lips. When she leaned forward, closing her eyes, I closed the distance while trying to keep my heart from stalling out. That first dive was indescribable, but our dive last month was indescribable for a completely different reason. It took us a bit of trial and error to finally find the best diving spot, but when we did, we wasted no time getting into our gear. After our buddy check, we anchored the boat and started our dive. The area we were in wasn't too deep, only about 60 feet down at the lowest, and there was plenty of sea life to watch as we made our way to our destination. Getting to our destination was always my favorite part of diving. As we swam, we slowly passed dozens of different sharks, jellies, schools of fish, and even some diving birds. We took our time looking for the rock formations we were after, enjoying the shared silence between us and the blue tint of everything around us. Unable to talk, but able to communicate with our hands and eyes. We'd been under for about 20 minutes, when we saw something appear far off in the distance. We both assumed it was what we'd come here to find. But for some reason, I couldn't shake the feeling that we were wrong. I ignored it because I'm naturally prone to anxiety, but I really shouldn't have. 
As we swam toward the indistinct shape ahead of us, dragging ourselves against the water that pulled at us, the blob came into focus. First, an ambiguous, grayish form. It resolved into straight lines and geometric shapes. Ness and I came to a halt at the same time. I'm sure she was having as hard a time as I was processing the impossibility in front of us. A weird feeling gripped me. It was a feeling I hadn't felt in over a decade, when I was a kid who surprisingly loved climbing trees. Somehow, heights never really scared me. One time during the summer when I was six, I was climbing the tall white oak tree near my house when I misstepped and put my weight on a thin branch that snapped under my foot. I wasn't even halfway up the tree, and the fall was only about 15 feet. But on my way down, I got caught on dozens of sharp branches, and when I reached the ground, I landed badly. It took my brain a good 30 seconds of processing the shock before I felt the pain and understood what was sticking out of my shin. And suspended 20 feet underwater, surrounded by the vastness of the ocean, that was the feeling that trapped me for an indeterminate amount of time. Even when my brain finished analyzing the information being sent to it, I couldn't get myself to accept what was in front of me. It was a house. A single-story house. Deep brown shingles covered an angled roof. Powder blue painted windows matched a door of the same color. Burgundy bricks lined the bottom of the walls and transitioned to white paneling halfway up. Patches of seaweed grew around the front of the house, an imitation lawn. There was even a brick chimney attached to the side of the house, completing the picture of domesticity. It was a perfectly normal, comfortable-looking home, except for the fact that it was sitting at the bottom of the ocean, 60 feet below the water's surface. The house looked undisturbed by the seawater or by any wandering sea creatures. Fish swam around the building and through the windows, which were apparently open, and seemed to be completely unaware of how weird this whole thing was. The fish treated the house like it might as well have been a pile of rock and coral. I suddenly felt very exposed, out in the middle of open water with only this fucking house in our immediate surroundings. The blue of the ocean stretched out in all directions, blue shifting to near black in the distance. I didn't really have any desire to understand what was happening or why, and I just wanted to swim away as fast as possible back the way we came. But when I looked over at Ness to signal my intentions, she was already swimming toward the house, because of course she was. When it comes to unexplainable things begging to be understood, she's the first one to go barreling at them full force. The sound of my breaths through my regulator filled my ears as I watched Ness get closer and closer to the house. Without her next to me, the vast ocean surrounding me and the water pressing in on my body made me feel like I was stuck 
in an invisible box. I had to remind myself to keep breathing because I tend to hold my breath when I'm stressed out. But that can be near lethal during a dive. The changing water pressure can have some nasty effects on your lungs. As I reminded myself to keep breathing, Ness kept propelling herself forward, her fins cutting currents through the water. If I could speak, I'd have told her I was going to leave without her if she didn't turn around and get back over to me. But I couldn't. And without her looking at me, I couldn't use hand signals to tell her how badly I wanted to turn tail and forget I ever saw the things she was eagerly swimming toward. I should have tried harder to get her to forget about the house. But at the time, I didn't see any other options available to me. So... I willed my legs to push me forward after Vanessa. As much as I dreaded getting close to it, the house didn't really feel dangerous. Weird and misplaced and unsettling, sure, but not threatening. Especially because the nearby sea creatures didn't seem to have any problem with it. Maybe that's why I lowered my guard and didn't try convincing Vanessa to leave. But as I swam up beside Ness, I still hoped that the door would be locked when she reached for the doorknob. The door was unlocked. Ness took that as an invitation to slip through the doorway, and I barely had the chance to think of stopping her before she was already through the open door and into the space beyond it. As much as I tried to rationalize the building's existence... I still really, really didn't want to go in after her. Even if she and all the fish in the sea thought that this was a totally innocuous thing to find sitting on the seabed, I still wanted nothing to do with it. But a school of sardines rushed the doorway, practically pulling me in with them, and before I knew it, I was floating in the center of the room past the door. It looked like a living room, perfectly average and equipped with a matching set of floral patterned couches. The walls were painted a yellow that looked green through the water. The sun filtered in through the windows to cast shifting patches of light on the beige carpet covering the floor. There was even a TV set facing the couches. The remote sitting on a wooden coffee table, along with a stack of disintegrating books and a decorative flower-shaped candle. Picture frames lined the walls, but whatever images they once held had been erased by the harsh seawater. A thresher shark drifted lazily along the carpeted floor, reminding me of my parents' ancient dachshund pepper. The sight of it actually calmed my nerves a bit. The shark's undulating movements enthralled me enough to make me forget where I was for a minute. But the minute passed and I was catapulted back into reality. The walls around me seemed to slowly squeeze in. I took in the details of the room from my high vantage point, floating high enough to be a few feet from touching anything. I'd been hoping, perhaps foolishly, that the house would be empty, with no rooms or walls or anything to divide the space inside. I was hoping for the building to be bland and boring enough that Vanessa would be more than willing to leave. I wasn't surprised that I'd been wrong, but 
Seeing the fully furnished living room did something weird to my chest, and I once again had to remind myself to keep breathing. I nearly pissed myself when I saw something poke out from the entryway of the opposite end of the room. But I was relieved to find that it was Ness, waving me over with movements that screamed excitement. I wanted her to see how not happy I was to be there, but if she noticed, she chose to ignore it. Still careful not to touch anything, I drifted over to her, trailing behind her as she led me down the hall. We passed open doors to fully furnished rooms. The bathroom even had a toothbrush and a holder set on the sink before the hall opened up into a kitchen. This room, too, was fully furnished. A granite-topped island sat in the center of the room, over which a set of pans and pots hung from hooks attached to the ceiling. An oven-microwave duo was set in one wall, the other walls lined by wooden cabinets that matched the floor, and a chrome refrigerator bordered the room. I didn't check to see if the fridge had any food in it. I didn't want to know. But that wasn't the room she wanted to show me. As she led me deeper into the house, the nagging feeling in my chest just grew stronger. I knew that something felt off. However, when we passed through the kitchen into a room that had to be the dining room, the feeling left me all at once. The room we were suspended in took my breath away, much like the house itself did. This was for an entirely different reason, though. Glass cabinets displaying crystal dishware hugged two opposite walls, the angles cut into the crystal reflecting and refracting light across the room. An ornate chandelier sat in the center of the ceiling, suspended above a fully set, glass-topped dining table. And directly in front of us, Behind the dining table was a wall made entirely of windows that let light pass freely into the room and off the hundreds of reflective surfaces within. The room lit up with the shine of a million diamonds, sparkling under the shifting light like handfuls of glitter. Outside the windowed wall, we could see into the ocean the occasional school of fish tumbling by in a frenzy. It was stunning, and I didn't even notice how my built-up tension seemed to slip away the longer we floated in the room. Vanessa squeezed my hand, and I squeezed back. The both of us, awed by the dancing lights around us. For some time, we just drifted around the room, facing the ceiling watching the lights jump across the white backdrop. We'd gone stargazing more times than I can count, but the magic of that space seemed to condense all of those late-night trips to the park into a single, breathtaking moment. After a while, we floated out of the room, the residual enchantment of the room making me feel weightless. We eventually came to what I guessed was the master bedroom. The room was inviting, 
large windows set behind a canopied queen-sized bed whose headboard lay against the wall to our right. The bed was dressed in varying shades of red and would have looked extremely comfortable if not for the seawater that soaked through the fabric. The burgundy tulle canopy swayed in the water, reminding me of jellyfish tentacles. At this point, I'd pretty much forgotten how much I hated the house. Vanessa and I looked at each other, and I was the one who signaled to approach the bed. I could tell she was smiling around her regulator as she nodded vigorously and pulled me towards it. When we were floating above the mattress, facing the canopy, we adjusted our BCDs and sunk down slowly until our air tanks lightly touched the bed sheets. I turned my head to look at her, and my heart squeezed at the look she was giving me. She stared at me, the smile in her green eyes clear as spring water, even through the plastic of her mask. Her hair floated in the water, making her look ethereal. A mermaid among common trout. The light spilling from the window caught in her hair, lighting up the strands as bright as fire coral. She was tracing over my face with her eyes, the same way I was, and I couldn't help the happy puffs of laughter bubbling through my regulator. We stayed like that for a minute or two, just content to share the moment. But then her face shifted to the space behind me. I saw a number of emotions pass through what I could see of her face. Confusion, shock, and something else entirely. I watched as her eyes widened further than I've ever seen them and I understood the emotion that now controlled her features. Fear. My heart lodged itself in my throat and I froze in place. Suddenly all the tension that I'd left back in the crystal and dining room rushed back to me with force. I'd never seen that kind of unbridled terror from her before. Not even when a robber broke into our store one night and held a gun to her head and just the sight of it sent a jolt of anxiety through my body. My mind blanked, and I couldn't even begin to consider what to do, to wonder what was even happening. But Vanessa was quick to move, always ready to react to bad situations, and she grabbed my wrist to pull me toward the door. Her grip on me was vice-like, her nails digging into me through the sleeve of my wetsuit. I furiously kicked my legs through the water, desperate not to slow her down with my weight. But you can only move so quickly when the ocean's pressing into you from all directions. When she noticed that I was struggling to swim with her hand on my wrist, she let go and we pushed our way through the dining room. The room felt different somehow. The rays reflecting off the thousand crystal surfaces burned my eyes. The sunlight now harsh where before it had been beautiful. I squinted against the beams of light as I swam after Ness. When we got to the kitchen, my eyes struggled to adjust. But when they did, I noticed details I'd somehow missed before. The wallpaper was ripped in places. The granite countertop gouged with deep cuts across its surface, 
as we entered the living room, grotesque with its rotten egg walls and gaudy floral prints, a chance to glance behind me into the hallway. I thought I saw some vague movement at the kitchen doorway, but I only had a second to look before we were through the front door and back out into the open sea. Even though we were out of the building and slowly expanding the distance between us and it, Ness didn't slow down even a little bit. She kept her eyes dutifully ahead of her, not looking at me. And my heart was still racing from the adrenaline. My mind had finally caught up with me, and I was terrified of whatever Vanessa saw, even though I still had no idea what it was. So I turned my head to look back at the house, which was now fading back into the vague blob it had been when we first saw it. But now there was another, smaller, indiscernible shape that was moving away from the house and towards us. I really couldn't make out any details, but it was definitely moving towards us. It was still a long way off, but I could tell that it was moving faster than we were. I was suddenly terrified that we'd disturbed a tiger shark or something when we went through the house. But if it was a shark or anything similar, I'm positive that it would have caught us before we even made it out the front door. My breath hitched, and I set my eyes back in front of me toward Vanessa. My legs were burning from the exertion, but I wanted to get back to our boat as quickly as possible. I wanted to ask Ness what she saw, but it's not like we really had any time to waste going up to the surface to chat. We just needed to get to the boat and debrief there. We swam in solitude for a while, neither of us trying to communicate with the other. I could tell that Ness was still shaken up, but I couldn't confront her. And I was still turning the house around in my head. The more I thought about it, the less it seemed possible that the building just appeared there by chance. I didn't and still don't understand why it was sitting there on the sea floor. And the whole thing was so bizarre that I don't know if we just collectively hallucinated the whole thing, but... The regulator hissed in my ears as my breath bubbled out into the water. I tried not to fear for the worst, but... We were both aware of something that neither of us wanted to acknowledge. We weren't sure where we were. Sure, our dive computers told us which way was north, but our trajectory got messed up during our escape from whatever we were escaping from, and neither of us realized it until we'd already been swimming for who knows how long. Even though we were heading in the right general direction, there was no telling how long it'd be until we were anywhere near our boat. And so, there was the issue of air to worry about. We'd only brought enough air for two, three hours tops. It was meant to be a quick dive, just scoping out the area. And according to the pressure gauge on my tank, I'd already blown through over half of my air supply. There was no way we'd been under for that long, but I was definitely breathing more rapidly while we were in the house. I just didn't realize how rapidly that was. I knew that Vanessa was probably dealing with the same problem, and I caught her attention as we kept swimming. I pressed the index and middle finger of my right hand to the open palm of my left, signaling that I wanted to know how much oxygen she had left. But as she was checking her pressure gauge, my eyes wandered to the seafloor, 
I stared in disbelief at the new impossibility before my eyes. Walking along the sandy floor of the ocean, as normal as if it was a leisurely midsummer stroll through the park, was a man. Just, just some regular-looking guy in a t-shirt and jeans, with a completely unremarkable face that could have belonged to any random passerby. Except that we were still in the ocean, and this random passerby, with his hands in his pockets and his head tilted up to smile at us as he approached us from below, was walking through the water as if he was on land rather than the bottom of the fucking ocean. It was no wonder that he was able to catch up to us. If the house was bizarre, this man made me seriously question my sanity. There was a disconnect between the wires in my brain. I I couldn't rationalize this. Couldn't convince myself that the past hour had just been some dive-related illness. I was stuck balking at the man. He just stared at us. And the way he was smiling at us. God, it was completely blank. His face plastered into the most fake-looking grin I'd ever seen. He was like a wax doll, only 20 times worse, because he was moving and smiling and following us. He didn't even blink, just walked forward at an even pace and measured footsteps, his hair sitting perfectly flat against his head. I thought I could see his mouth begin to move, but fuck if I was going to watch him any longer and try to make out the words. And as I started turning back to Ness, I noticed his footsteps changing slightly. Instead of walking in a flat line, he started taking steps upward, like there was an invisible staircase in front of him. This time, I actually did piss my pants. This time, though, I was also able to move. I grabbed Ness's wrist just long enough to get her to start swimming. We pulled our way through the water, refusing to slow down even a little. It felt like we were pulling ourselves through molasses, but I didn't dare look behind me. Didn't consider how much oxygen I was wasting by heaving and pushing my body past exhaustion. The adrenaline kept me from registering any pain in my lungs or limbs, kept my mind running quicker than my legs kicking through the water. My mind wanted so badly to understand what was happening, but nothing could justify what was happening. I lost track of time, torn between my racing thoughts and my moving body. I prayed and prayed for our boat to appear along the surface of the water, but it didn't. No matter how much I silently begged, no matter how many tears collected in my mask and fogged up the plastic, I just kept pushing forward, past unaware fish and patches of seaweed, the only thought racing through my head, screaming at me to get back to the boat. The adrenaline started wearing off, and I could feel the weight of my limbs hindering my movement. The pain laced through my body finally caught up with me, and my furious swimming devolved into a dead man's float. My oxygen tank was running dangerously low. 
I was waiting for the man to catch me. But then, finally, miraculously, I saw the boat. We made it. I made a final push toward the boat, turning around to bask with Ness in our victory when we were only a couple feet from the boat. The sea around me was vast, filled with life. The man was gone. But so was Vanessa. From where I was, I could see a mile out in all directions. But I was the only one there. I tried telling myself that she was just a bit behind, that she'd catch up to me and we'd hug and kiss and celebrate this together. But that's not what happened. I hate myself because it's me who left her behind when I swore I'd keep her safe. I don't think I even told her that I love her before we started the dive. And that was a month ago. When I got to the boat, I immediately called the Coast Guard and begged them to find Vanessa. They scoured the seafloor, combing the ocean for any trace of her. The search radius was much wider than the distance Ness and I traveled that day. I didn't ask the Coast Guard if they found the house or the man, and I somehow figured that no one would be able to find them even if they were trying. Unless I'm the one looking. Because, you see, they've been calling to me. And I know, I know, I didn't believe it at first either. After a couple of weeks of meetings with police, reporters, and Vanessa's family, I tried my best to be functional again. I carried the guilt with me wherever I went, but I still needed to pay my bills and do the things that humans do, even if I was doing it mechanically. Even if people recognized me on the street and gave me suspicious looks wherever I went. But about a week ago, something happened. I was walking home from an overnight work shift when I saw him. He was sitting on a bench across the street. Jeans, t-shirt, smile, and all. When I tried looking at him directly, he disappeared. So... I passed it off as a result of exhaustion. I hadn't been sleeping well. A couple days after that, though, I was walking through town in the afternoon. As I walked down the line of storefronts, a powder blue tinged reflection caught my eye. From my periphery, I thought I could see a brick chimney and white paneling. But, like the man, it disappeared when I looked directly at it. I was ready to call a psychologist about my hallucinations. Before I made the call, though, I started seeing them. The house and the man. Everywhere. Two days ago, I stared at the man. He was standing in an aisle of my store for a solid minute before he disappeared. This wasn't exactly enough to convince me not to call a doctor. But then, I saw her. Her smile was just like I remembered it. And I think it all means something. 
think I'm being given a second chance to save her. So, I'm going to fix this. I've already gathered my gear, and my boat's waiting at the dock. I don't expect anyone to believe me about any of this, but I have to believe that Vanessa's still out there waiting for me. And as long as that's a possibility, I can't bring myself to abandon her again. I love her. And I hope, more than anything, that love's enough. If you need a job, you'll take almost anything, even if your friends are warning you that it seems too good to be true. Worth a try, right? But sometimes they're correct, and the best thing to do is just bail. But in this tale, shared with us by author Sir Pilum, walking out of the interview isn't as easy as it seems. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Alexis Bristow, Nicole Doolin, Peter Lewis, and Kyle Akers. So you'd better hope you don't get trapped by those yuppie psychos. Don't let work be the death of you. And whatever you do, try to get out of the hallway. I don't know, Amy. Sounds a little off to me. I mean, I think it's worth checking out. I'm sick of working commission, Natalie. I want a job that pays steady. You don't think it sounds a little sketchy? Great pay and benefits for a part-time position that requires no experience. I know, but... And you're required to work at night. I know, but... And the company didn't even list their name. I know. I just don't want to miss out on a good opportunity. I'll just swing by the place to see what it's like. And if it looks weird, I won't even apply. You can't trust online job listings. Where did you even find it? It wasn't online. It was in the paper. Right... here. If this was a scam or something, why would they put it in the newspaper? No criminals are going to be posting in the classifieds. (sighs) Just a quick peek at the place, that's all I'm doing. Well, open or closed? What? Open or closed? If they find your body in separate dumpsters, do you want an open or closed casket? Natalie! If you don't like that job, then here. Find something else. And while you browse, I am going to be doing some reconnaissance. Call me when you're on the way back and let me know you're okay. I will. Should be just ahead. Hmm. Doesn't look like a meth lab or anything. 
Parking lot looks pretty clean. Begonias in the flower bed. I highly doubt the mafia is gonna spruce up a money laundering setup with spring flowers by the front door. <sighs> okay, let's do this. Oh, a fish tank. Good sign. Oh, there's a tiny elephant blowing bubbles from his trunk. How cute. Wait. Sideways fish. Bad sign. These people are definitely serial killers. I knew it. Hello. How can I help you? Hello. <laughs> My name is Amy Redford. I'm here about the job posting in the paper. Wonderful. Have a seat and I'll take down your information. She seems friendly enough. Hold on, is that a typewriter? She can't seriously be using that. So, are you a local resident? Yes, I've been living here for about eight months now. I'm studying English at the university. Excellent. Let's start with the basics. First name? Amy. That's A-M-Y. <laughs> Just A-M-Y. Yes, I know. Last name? Um, Redford. That's uh, quite the machine you've got there. I haven't seen someone use a typewriter for an interview before. <laughs> I didn't realize that was unusual. Let's get this out of the way and use something more conventional. We're normal here. What? Why would someone say that? Natalie was right. This is sketchy. <laughs> Good to know. Here we are. Pen and paper? What's your current address? Should I tell her where I live? I'm getting weirded out. Uh, I live on campus at the moment. All right. Are you prone to exaggerated emotional outbursts? <laughs> oh, um, no. And are you sexually active? What? I, uh, no. What kind of question was that? That's completely inappropriate. Ugh, why did I even answer? I should end this. Just stand up and walk out, Amy. Do it. Don't worry about being rude. Just leave. You said you're currently studying English, correct? Um, yes. Actually, I really just wanted to ask a few questions about the job before I actually applied. Oh. Would you like to see the interviewer? He's free now. I, uh... Sure. Why not? Perfect. Step into this hallway behind me, and it's the door on the right-hand side. Just knock. Thanks. I wonder if I can get a glance at that paper when I walk behind her. I want to know what she was writing about me. Oh my god, it's just scribbles! She wasn't even writing anything! What the hell is happening here? Oh, this hallway is so dark. I'm getting out of here. I'll just say I need something from my car and never come back. 
I'm sorry. I forgot something in my car and... Oh, uh, I... I'm sorry. I thought I was walking back to the front. Hmm. Clearly, this is not the front. But I assume you have the mental capacities to figure that out by now. The front lobby is on the other end of the hallway. It's the only other door. Yeah, I... I just came through it. There's no way this is possible. I only walked a couple feet into the hallway. I went right back through the door I came in. Maybe I'm just flustered? Well, since you're already using up my time, I heard you had a few questions about the job. What would you like to know? How does he know I had questions about the job? Could he hear me from down a hallway behind two closed doors? Actually, I forgot something in my car. I'm just going to run out and grab it real quick. To the bathroom? What? Where? Where's the hallway? What's going on? I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the door I just walked through. Why is there a bathroom on the other side of it now? Where? Where's the other door to the hallway? Uh, other door? Are you feeling okay? That's the only door in this room. Oh, God. It is the only door in here. Where's the door to the hallway? This can't be real. Something's wrong. Now that you mention it, I'm not feeling okay. I need to use the restroom. Amy? Natalie, I need help. Something's wrong. Something is going on here. I need you to come get me. Amy, what's wrong? And where have you been? I've been calling you for hours. I don't know. What? I've barely been here five minutes. What? A Amy, it's been almost seven hours since you left. What's happening? I'm grabbing the paper now to find the address. I'm going to be there as fast as I can. Do I need to call the cops? No, I... I don't think so. <sighs> I might be going crazy. I can't tell. I started feeling uncomfortable, so I tried to leave, but somehow ended up in an office. Then I tried to leave the office, but there was a bathroom instead of a hallway. What? Have you been drugged? I'm coming right now. Get out if you can, but if not, I'm knocking down every door in that building until I find you. Hang in there. I tried to get out. There was no door to leave. There was only one door, and it opened into this bathroom. Amy, how did you get into the room if there are no other doors? I don't know. Please just get here. Wait. If you get here, don't come inside. I don't want you to get trapped, too. No can do, Amy. Somebody's getting their ass kicked when I get there. Just hang on. I'm coming, okay? Please hurry. Okay. Maybe I'm just panicking. I'll go back in the office and see if I missed the door the first time. If I have to go through every door I see, then that's what I'll do. It's a small building. It shouldn't take long to find my way out. Oh, perfect timing. Hand me that box of rubber gloves behind you, hmm? My hands are a bit full. Uh, uh, I... You're... 
hands. Hands? What's wrong with his hands? How did I not notice them before? They're so long! Maybe he had them below the desk or something. Oh, no human hand should be able to fit four boxes of gloves in each hand. And now I'm in a supply closet? <gasps> There's nothing but boxes of rubber gloves in here. There must be hundreds of boxes. Surgical gloves, dishwashing gloves, child-sized gloves. I'm gonna be sick. I've gotta get out of here. Okay, just back up slowly to the door. Where is it? No, no, no! It's gone! It's gone! It's on the other side of the closet behind this freak! The gloves, Amy. I'm leaving, excuse me. I said, I'm leaving! Get out of the way! The gloves, Amy. The yellow box with the powdered nitrile gloves, yes, that's the one. Thank you. Now, wait here. Hello? Okay, definitely call the cops now. I'm in a creepy closet filled with rubber gloves. They won't let me leave. Amy, is that you? What happened to you? Where did they take you? Are you safe? We were starting to think we would never see you again. What? What are you talking about? Are you almost here? Almost where? Where did they take you? Amy, I... I promise I came looking for you, but by the time I got to that address, everything was gone. The cops searched top and bottom, but it was just bare walls. I drove around for weeks hoping to see you, but we couldn't find any trace of you. Where are you now? What? I don't understand. I just talked to you 30 seconds ago. I'm still trapped in the building! You're in the same building? Amy, it's been almost four months since you disappeared. Yes, I'm in the same building! Come help me! It has not been four months! What are you talking about? Just get me out of here! Okay, okay, I'm coming. I'm, I'm gonna hang up and call the police, and I'll call you right back. Grab anything you can find to use as a weapon. Okay, just hurry! What's happening? Why did she say I disappeared? Maybe... Maybe I am going crazy. <laughs> I just want to get out of here. <laughs> I just want to get out of here. Is there anything in here I can use to protect myself? Damn it! Damn it! Nothing but gloves! Should I try going through the door again? I don't want to die. Natalie should be calling back any second. Okay, I can't wait for her. Amy? Natalie! Did you call them? Amy, is that you? Of course it's me! Who else would it be? Look, I can't wait for you to get here. I'm making a break for it. Amy, what, what happened to you? What happened after the last time you called me? What do you mean? I sat in a dimly lit supply closet for about 20 seconds. That's what's been happening! Wait, is there someone listening? If there's somebody there you can't answer honestly, just say everything is under control, Bob. 
No, no one is listening. Natalie, you're confusing me. I'm honestly confused myself. You haven't contacted anyone in over half a year. There's a missing persons case for you. Your dad thinks you're dead. Are you okay? We thought maybe you'd been kidnapped or something. Please tell me what's going on. Half a year? You're not making any sense! I'm still here at the interview! I need help! The interview? Do you... Are you saying you've been at the interview for seven months? Amy, please just help me understand. It hasn't been seven months! Please come help me! I... I just don't know what to think, Amy. (sighs) Okay, I'll come down to the building again, but I'm not gonna bother the police about it. Do you swear to me that you're actually there this time? Yes! I don't get what you're so confused about! Okay. Okay, I'll call you when I get there. No, don't hang up! This is a nightmare! I wish I had never seen that stupid posting! Something's going on with Natalie. I don't think I can count on her. I'm getting out, one way or the other. The hallway. No one's around. I've got to take the chance while I have the opening. Okay. Quiet. Quiet. Halfway there. Excuse me. Are you okay? few months to pretend you're back at that building again. What? I... If this is really Amy, then I think you need help. You remember when you called me months ago saying you were in a closet or something? I came to look even though I suspected it was another false alarm. No sign of anyone in that building. Same as the last time. I never would have imagined you were the type to do things like this. After the third time you called frantically, begging me to come rescue you, I started to realize this might be some kind of sick, disturbed game you were playing. Every single time you called me, I dropped everything I was doing and came to help. It's been almost a year since Amy disappeared. Amy, if this is you, please just tell me the truth and end this. Why do you keep doing this? Natalie, why are you saying this? I need you right now. Something is really wrong. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. Whoever this is, you need to get some help. (laughs) Natalie. (laughs) 911, what's your emergency? I need help. Can you tell me what's happening? I think... I think I might be having a psychotic break or something. I'm trapped in a building, and I don't know how to get out. Okay, do you know the address of the building? No, I can't remember. I used my GPS to get here. It's near Pennsylvania Avenue, I think. Okay, 
We're going to use your phone's GPS to find your location, so we can send someone to help. Can you tell me your name? My name is Amy Redford. Okay, Amy. Are you hurt or injured? No, I just want to go home. Something's wrong. Okay, help is on the way. Is there anyone else around? I... I don't know. Amy, are you still on the line? Yeah, I'm here. There are police officers at your location now. They're there to help you, okay? Are you in a one-story white brick building? Yes, that's the building I'm in. It's got a little wooden fence around the flower beds. Okay, the officers are outside the front door. They're going to come inside. Do you know where you are inside the building? The hallway. Do you know which hallway? Near the front desk. Okay, the officers are inside now. Do you see them? No. Are you able to get to the front door? Is the weird woman still in there? One moment, Amy. Amy, the officer said there's nothing in that room at all. You can come out. They're going to help you. Okay. I'm going to open the hallway door. (laughs) She's still there. Where are the cops? They're not here. Please help me. Amy, the officers are standing right inside the front door. You don't see them? No. I'm looking right at the front door. They're not here. Are you real? Yes, I'm real. We're going to help you. Can you do me a favor? To make sure we're looking in the right place, I want you to walk towards the front door. Describe everything you're seeing. I don't want to walk into the room. The weird lady is in there. It's going to be okay. I'll stay on the line with you the whole time. Just keep talking to me and describe what you see. Can you do that for me? I guess. Okay. I'm walking into the front lobby. The weird lady is still here, but her hands are normal. She's looking at me. Okay. You don't have to look at her if you don't want to. Just keep walking towards the door and keep talking. I still see the fish tank. It has dead fish inside. I'm walking up to the front door now. Okay. Can you open the door? Yes. I... I don't see the cops. You don't see them? What do you see? I see... the hallway. Ghosting. Back in the day, this used to mean being haunted by the undead. But now, it's an even more terrifying concept. Being ignored by a potential date. Is there anything more terrifying than being left on unread? It makes you start asking what's wrong with you. In this tale, shared with us by author Luke Hohen, Shannon's convinced she knows why she's unlucky in love, and thankfully, her stylist is there to help. 
Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Aaron Lillis, and Sarah Thomas. So spare some pity for Shannon. She's comfortable with most things about herself. Everything but her face. trash. Ugly and unwanted. I was coming off of a series of bad dates with no follow-up, so I went to the place I went to whenever I felt like garbage. I went to the spa. I'd been seeing my style as Zoe for years. Her sleeves had a tattoo from every city she'd ever lived in, and every time I saw her, her hair was a different shade of something beautiful. She was a walking reminder that all hipsters grew up to become beauticians or bartenders. Her partner was the bartender. I asked for the usual touch-ups while my fingers and toes dried. Color the roots, fade the bangs, layer the back. All the things that made me feel normal and presentable again. Something's off about you today. Everything all right, sweetie? Her voice had the edge of just one too many cigarettes. It's nothing. Boy trouble. Zoe scanned my face in the mirror. I looked at the red on my toes instead of her reflection. Oh, woman troubles. You have my sympathies. Some girls are just as bad as the boys. Is it that obvious? A smile crept out. She shrugged. Well, you came in a few days early, so I figured something must be wrong. You're usually a bit chattier, too. So, come on, spill. Between you, me, and the mirror, what's on your mind? (sighs) Zoe wasn't what I would call a friend, but she was the only person I knew who was willing to listen to me, even if I had to pay her. I thought I really had a chance with this last one, Gail Gordon. We met on a dating app, we started DMing, we liked the same books, we had similar careers. She was funny, and I thought she thought I was funny too. I thought everything was fine, up until the first date. Zoe hummed in agreement as she patted down my hair with black-gloved hands. And then what happened? Well, the date was okay. It started a little awkward. I mean, she didn't even recognize me at first. I know I'm not exactly like my photos, but to be fair, neither was she. It's not like I was catfishing her or anything. I I thought we'd gotten over that, but once things started picking up, she excused herself for a call and and never came back. I was stuck with the bill, and she hasn't responded to me since. Bitch! She clutched non-existent pearls. I know, right? But this just keeps happening. I wish I knew what to... Um, I don't know. I just wish I knew what to do. Are you just venting, or are you looking for some advice, hon? Zoe raised my bangs with her fingers and made a sideways grimace. Both? How old are you, sweetie? 34? 35? 25... Oh, honey, no. Zoe pursed her lips together. Here's your answer. You have everything going on, but you're... She traced my face in the mirror with her comb. Face. Yeah, I mean, you're beautiful just the way you are, but, you know, beauty sometimes needs a little helping hand every now and then. I mean, these wrinkles, where did they all come from at your age? Work. The excuse came out so flat that I didn't even believe it. 
This isn't just work, honey. Do you use sunscreen? Exfoliate? Any skincare routine at all? I shook my head. <sighs> a little goes a long way. How old do you think I am? 28? Closer to 38, sweetie. 28 was my high guess. Up close, Zoe's skin was flawlessly smooth and youthful. She circled her face. I mean, look at me. I could bullshit you and say it's because I drink eight glasses of water a day, or eat vegan, or get all my steps in. But I'll level with you. I still smoke every day, and I still drink whiskey straight from the bottle, but it doesn't matter because I still make the time to take care of my skin. I moisturize. Really? I inspected her face. There was barely a mole, freckle, or blotch on her. The only makeup I could see were the accents around her eyes and lips. Honestly, honey, if you don't take care of yourself, how do you expect to find someone to take care of you? She was right. It hurt, but she was right. Between work and dating, I hardly ever took the time to take care of myself. I mean, that was why I went to a stylist. Maybe that wasn't enough. Look, I'm finished with your hair. Let me help you with this. Okay, yeah, let's do it. She clapped her hands once and pulled out a wide drawer packed with an assortment of pastel-colored bottles and jars. No. No. No, not that one either. She looked at me before turning back. Too dry. No, she's not that oily. Her fingers kept rolling over lid tops until she found something stuck in the back. Oh, I think we have a winner. She showed the jar to me. The label was in an alphabet I didn't recognize. The branding featured a square-jawed woman blowing a kiss over an ocean sunset. Her hair melted into the waves and a wall of text on the back. Tacky, I know, but if I remember correctly, this stuff worked wonders. She unscrewed the jar and dipped in two fingers. A trail of putty pulled out until it snapped away from the bottom. She ground the gritty gray substance between her fingers and thumb until it became more viscous. This might tingle a bit. She swiped her fingers quickly across my forehead and it burned. I winced in pain. You all right, sweetie? Zoe grimaced. It stung for a few more moments before my forehead started to feel cool, almost cold. Uh, yeah. Do you want me to keep going? I nodded and she smiled. She started moving her fingers around my forehead in small circles before working down the sides of my face and under my eyes. She stepped back and looked at me. Perfect. She moved aside and I saw myself in the mirror. It was stunning. Oh my god. I'm gorgeous. My forehead looked like a marble statue. Blotches, pit marks, and wrinkles were filled in and over and were almost impossible to see. The lines on my forehead were erased, the beginnings of crow's feet on my temples melted away, and the dark puffy circles under my eyes disappeared. You are now, honey. She paused, catching herself. I mean, you always were. This cream just highlights it. I was lost in my reflection. Zoe let out a small cough after several minutes, and I snapped back to reality. <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. What do I owe you? The girls up front will take care of that. She checked her watch and balled up her gloves, tossing them into the trash. I held up the jar from the counter. Do you sell this up front? Sorry, hon. I don't think we have for years. She forced a smile and gently took it from me. But I'm sure you can find it online. 
Another woman, probably her next appointment, entered the room. I took it as a hint that I needed to leave. All right, well, thank you. I hugged her and she hugged me back with one arm. Okay, sweetie. Make sure to schedule your next appointment and I'll see you next month. I was elated for the rest of the day. I went shopping and bought a few outfits to match my new face and hair. It felt good to look good. People were nicer to me and it made me want to be nicer to them. I was still riding that high when I got home that night. I called it up with my cat, Dexter, and browsed the internet for that cream. It was hard to find at first, which wasn't surprising. I, I didn't even have a name, just an image. The internet was a big place, but someone had to sell it. I dug for hours until I finally started getting results. It was raved about in inactive forms for being literally transformative. Botox in a bottle, someone gushed. The best thing to happen to me since my wedding, someone else praised. Why don't they sell this in the States anymore? The reviews only made me want it even more. I followed the crumbs and found a site that referenced a site that might have sold it. The language was different, and who knows what the price was in dollars, but I had found it. I pulled out my credit card with the highest limit and ordered a case. After coming down from the euphoria of the day, I crashed. I woke up feeling like my plain old-looking self. My hair was ruined by my pillow, and I could feel the oil building up under the mask on my face. My skin looked like cracked clay in the mirror. I showered, and shortly after that, the wrinkles I didn't even know I had returned, along with the burden of realizing they had always been there. I knew the package, the cream, was coming. It had to. I needed it to. I tried to tide myself over with lotions, balms, and face masks, but... While they helped some, they seemed lacking. I tried to schedule another appointment with Zoe, but she was booked until my next appointment, and I was too embarrassed to push. There was the small panic of being scammed, but there was the bigger fear of remaining ugly. No one would want me. Not like this. I shuffled through work, but I knew they thought I wasn't pretty. I might as well have been a glorified adding machine. For one day, I knew what life for the beautiful people was like. I could tell that if I was prettier, curt interactions would become conversations, conversations would become friendships, and friendships could become relationships. I knew things could be better, and that knowledge was agony. The case came the following week, and it was a godsend. I tore open the box and unscrewed a jar while trying to remember the steps Zoe did. I took a glob on two fingers and smattered it on my face. I rubbed my palms around my forehead in large circles and continued rubbing down the sides of my face and under my eyes. My whole face stung and my fingers prickled. I kept rubbing and the grittiness of the cream filled in every crevice and smoothed over the bumps on my face. I felt my way to the bathroom and once my face stopped freezing, I looked up. A feeling of relief washed over me. Looking back in the mirror was me, the, the better version of me, a, a younger, healthier, and happy-looking version that I hadn't seen in what seemed like years. I smiled, and I looked radiant. I snapped a few photos and uploaded them to social media. Messages and likes started flooding in, a, a mix of jealousy, lust, and pride. I changed my profile picture and updated my dating accounts. Private messages started coming in. A handful were dirtier than I would have liked. No filter, but it felt good to be desired. I went to bed relieved and exhausted. 
A series of meows and a paw to the cheek woke me up in the morning. In my excitement, I had forgotten to feed the poor guy the night before. I blearily walked to the childproof lock that kept his food behind bars and filled up his bowl twice as high. After the usual accusatory eyes, he dug his face into the mound of brown and purred like a maniac. I closed his cabinet and I went to the bathroom to wash my face. Even though I could feel the grease on my face, I was still hesitant to wash it off. I had more cream, I I had loads more. Whatever I washed off, I could put back on, but still, there was fear there. I was afraid that if I washed it off, I wouldn't look like me anymore. I inspected my face. Everything was as smooth and gorgeous as the day before. Everything except four divots on my cheek above a partial semicircle. Something like a cat's paw. Exactly like a cat's paw. I hopped in the shower and tried to push the thought out of my head. It was probably just a weird sleep wrinkle for my pillow. I washed my hair and my hands settled on my face. I rubbed my cheek and I felt the indentations. I puffed my cheeks, but the marks were still there. The room warmed as the shower ran. I lathered my hands and scrubbed around my face with the washcloth. My fingers pushed harder, and I could finally feel the divots pop slowly back into place. The bathroom air was thick with mist, but I could feel my skin beginning to dry as soon as I turned off the shower. I wiped away the fog on the mirror and looked at myself. My cheek was red from rubbing, and all of my imperfections were back on display. I slathered another coat of the cream onto my face. It burned hotter before freezing colder than I remember. My fingers felt my face, but my face didn't feel my fingers anymore. They moved in small circles and the redness faded away. I furrowed my brow and smoothed the bumps down into my forehead. I smiled and I spackled my laugh lines. I opened my mouth wide and raised my eyes up and down. I took more of the cream and rubbed it in every crevice. Everything was elastic and should have felt fantastic. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be beautiful, but something was off. My eyebrows were too bushy to pluck effectively, the bridge of my nose was too pronounced to be pretty, and my jawline was too weak to be considered conventionally beautiful, among other things. All the flaws and faults I had tolerated, I was beginning to hate. I touched the dreaded bump on my nose. It was too noticeable now, too grotesque. I wanted to smooth it out like everything else. I pushed down hard, and with an audible crack, my fingers went deeper than they should have gone. I jerked my hand back in surprise, expecting bruising or blood, but instead there was nothing. Just an indentation in my nose and a look of surprise in the mirror. I touched it again. My face was numb, and while my fingers were tingling, I could still feel the squishiness of my nose. Fascination overrode any feelings of panic. My fingers pulled and kneaded the bridge of my nose until it was one perfect, slightly curved slope. (laughs) I ran my fingers over my eyebrows until the extra hairs came out. I stretched the skin under my neck until I only had one chin. I was ecstatic. I pulled off a mole and I sharpened my cheekbones. I looked at my reflection. I was pretty, but I couldn't stop there. There were so many things to fix. I opened another jar and ran it down my arms, removing generations of inherited hair. I pushed my fat to my uneven breasts and molded my cellulite into the ideal bottom. I opened another jar and kept smoothing until I was a perfect hourglass figure with 
the face of a goddess. My phone chimed. My updated profile was blowing up. I saw the photo and felt a wave of disgust. I wasn't that woman anymore. I was someone better, someone flawless. There were so many girls, so many boys even, that wanted that incomplete woman. <sighs> if they could only see me now. I snapped another photo as I hugged my towel. I went to upload it when I saw her name. My heart stopped. Zoe was right. It was my face. The only thing keeping my romantic hopefuls away were my looks and, even though Zoe didn't say it, my body. The ugly truth cemented in my mind as I read her message. Sorry I left things the way I did. If you give me another chance, I'll explain it over dinner. Gail Gordon. The woman who ghosted me wanted another chance. My blood began to boil. I could barely believe the audacity. I wouldn't let her humiliate me like that. I, I couldn't. She didn't want me at my worst, so like hell she was going to have me at my best. I wanted to tell her off, but no, that would have been too easy. She didn't deserve that. She deserved much worse than that. She needed to feel how it felt to be rejected, and I knew just the way to do it. I created a new dating account for the new me. My inbox started filling up immediately, but I ignored each one, waiting for her to take the bait. Dexter meowed in the doorway. I looked at him and he scampered off. Even he knew how serious I was. I waited. Minutes turned into hours, and she still didn't bite. Texts from work asked where I was. It didn't matter. I had the time. They didn't need me, and I needed this way more than I needed them. I waited until later in the afternoon before I finally messaged her. Hey, cutie. My fingers mashed each spite-filled letter. The reply came back 15 minutes later. Me? Yeah, you. Her next reply came back several minutes after that. Is this a bot? <laughs> no, silly, it's a date. I seethed at her games. She replied instantly. What? Really? You. Me. The looking glass downtown. Sure. Why not? I work downtown. I get off soon. You'll get off at seven. I could play the sex pot if she wanted to play coy. Okay. There was a break. Meet you at seven. My revenge was palpable. I did one last spot check in the mirror before putting on one of my tighter dresses. My body filled it in all the right places, and I knew in person I would be irresistible. Gail Gordon didn't stand a chance. As soon as I had her wrapped around my finger, I would break her heart. More than that, I would break her spirit the way she broke mine. I chose the looking glass for a reason. It's classic, expensive, and most importantly, well-lit. Mirrors line every wall, making it look like the tavern stretched out into infinity. I wanted to be seen at every angle, and I wanted to see the looks of everyone in that room once I dumped her. I arrived late at 7.30. The restaurant was full of patrons, and the air tasted hot and humid. 
She was waiting at a table in the middle of the room with a glass of amber liquid. The hostess looked at me slack-jawed before I pointed to my date for the evening. She nodded and led me to her. Every eye that caught me lingered. I stepped with one leg in front of the other like the starlets did in the movies. My date looked at me in awe as I sat down. See something you like? Yes. Yeah. I was just surprised. You look different from your picture. Don't we all? Sure. Her jacket hung on the chair and her sleeves were pulled up. She took a sip from her glass. Anyway, I don't think I caught your name. Shannon. The truth slipped out. She nodded. That's a more common name around here than I thought. There was a moment of silence as I sized her up. She was nervous. This was good. Yeah, so I usually don't do this... Well, this kind of dating. But I figured the sooner I got on with life, the better. What do you mean? I tried to frown. I wasn't sure if I did. My last date didn't go so great. I had to go back home for a family thing. A, um, serious family thing. But that's... She paused and took another sip. The iceberg was almost melted. Well, I guess that's over now. Well, yes, family can be rough. Yeah, my mom's never been that supportive. Still, at the end... She just wanted me to settle down with a nice someone. Anyone. It didn't matter as long as I could be happy. (laughs) She laughed nervously and wiped out her eyes. But she won't be telling me that anymore, so I thought I'd try something new. You're not my usual type, but I figured, why not? Why not? You should be lucky. I mean, (laughs) look at me. I motioned my hands to my face and body. She pursed her lips and nodded. Fuck. I might have made a mistake here. My voice rose and I pushed myself out of my chair. (sighs) A mistake? A mistake? Listen here, you chunky little bitch. You don't get to tell me what a mistake is. You're the mistake. (laughs) I'm not drunk enough for this. She put down her glass. I'm sorry. I mean... I think we should call it a night. She pulled out her clutch. She was sweating. Put that away! You you don't get to leave me again! What? Again? She looked into my eyes. Appalled realization washed over her face. Shannon? Oh my god, what did you do to yourself? How? I... I am beautiful. Eyes started to look at me from around the room. I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't seem to move my mouth to form a coherent sentence. Don't people look at me like that? I am a goddess. Their faces weren't in awe. They were horrified. Gasps left petrified lips as I looked around the room. People rushed out through the patio doors, the wind knocking over the loose items on their tables. It was the first time I noticed how still the room had been, how stagnant the air had smelled, how the glasses and bottles sweated onto their coasters. It was hotter than I thought, but I couldn't feel anything. I snapped my head back around and something splattered onto my table. Jesus Christ, we 
We need to call an ambulance. There's something... There's something wrong with your face. I looked in the mirror. It, it was easy. They were all around me, and I screamed. From every angle, I could see myself falling apart. Flesh from my cheeks stripped off slowly, exposing the bones underneath. My body sagged and melted under the lights. I heard more screaming, lower and guttural. Maybe it was my own. I grabbed my face and frantically tried to push it back into place. Patrons cleared the area. Gail froze in panic as I stared at her in my own terror. I couldn't push anything back into shape. I was ugly again. And the hideous, screaming skull in the mirrors knew it. our final tale, we're reminded of how hard it can be growing up in an orphanage, especially one filled with bullies and run by a tyrannical matron. Thankfully, our hero has a friend he can count on. In this tale, shared with us by author Rene Rain, the two kids discover something that makes their tormented existence more bearable. But when they find out they're not the only ones privy to the discovery, that's when things turn terrifying. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Aaron Lillis, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, and Graham Rowett. So do what you can to get through the day. Find your escape. Just be careful you're not going to use the Room of Change. It's said that once we're adults, we don't remember much of our life before the age of 10. The scientific term for this is childhood amnesia. Some people talk about not remembering certain events in their childhood. They might look at old photo albums of their early years and get this sad look on their faces. Often they don't remember certain family gatherings or birthdays. I'm not one of these people. I pray that many of these early memories stay hidden. You might ask why. It's because I grew up an orphan. I never got to meet my biological parents. Instead, I was pushed around from family to family and orphanage to orphanage. The foster system can work great if you're lucky. I wasn't. More than once have I been abused by people who promised to take care of me. Needless to say, I grew up to be quite the bad child. A troublemaker, really. That's why I ended up at Madame Rose's orphanage. It was a foster home for bad kids like me. It was a special place quite popular in the area I was from. An orphan couldn't find a foster home or had terrible behavior. He'd end up at Madame Rose's eventually, to iron out all the wrinkles. Madame Rose was a tall, haggard and stern old lady. I guess she was in her late 50s or early 60s when I moved into her orphanage. She valued nothing more than discipline and obedience. I hated her guts ever since I first met her. When she stepped in front of me, her eyes were hard. She looked down at me with an expressionless face. 
So, another one, hmm? Without another word, she led me inside and showed me the place that would be my home for the next years. The orphanage itself was a testament of times long gone. It was an old Prussian mansion, most likely dating back to the time when Prussia was still governed by kings. The place was huge from the outside, and absolutely gigantic inside. It was clear that the building had been remodeled countless times. All these changes had transformed it into a sprawling mess of hallways. There were endless corridors and hundreds of rooms in this three-storied monstrosity. I found out that Madame Rose's orphanage was actually just one wing of the building. It consisted of the dormitories, the common room, the kitchen, and a few other smaller rooms. In her stern voice, she made it clear to me that my life would be restricted to this part of the building alone. The rest, she said, was off-limits for us kids. Well, I was a kid, and like all kids, I loved to explore and sneak around. The more something was forbidden, the more attractive and compelling it became to me. I spent most of my days studying or listening to Madame Rose's countless lectures on how to be a good kid. The few unattended hours of free time I had, I spent exploring the maze of hallways and rooms. Hidden and secret passages were everywhere. I found my way into the crawl spaces, explored the attic, and even the musky basement. At other times, I saw rooms that no one seemed to have entered in years, or maybe even decades. They were old, dusty rooms filled with nothing but old memories. One such room I stumbled upon was the Room of Change. My best and only friend at the orphanage was a boy named Tiny Joe. He got this nickname because he was a scrawny little boy, shy, frail, and much too small for his age. I never found out what was wrong with him, but looking back, he must have suffered from some sort of hereditary disease. While his body was weak, his mind was always active. During my first days at the orphanage, the two of us would talk endlessly. He told me how much he loved animals, farms, fields, and most of all, tractors. He'd give anything to be a farmer one day and drive his own tractor. We soon bonded and became brothers in crime. Whenever his health allowed it, we'd sneak out to explore the labyrinth and maze of hallways. Of course, we weren't the only kids who did this. It was just that I didn't get along with most of the other kids. I was a troublemaker, but I was far from the worst kid at Madame Rose's. Not by a long shot. There was Tony, a boy who suffered from anger problems and who'd beaten more than one foster sibling to a pulp. Stefan, a creepy tall boy, had a knack for animal cruelty. None of them were as bad as Michael, though. He was one of the older kids. I'd guess he was about 12 when I moved into the place. Michael was not just another bad kid. No, he was cruel. And what made it even worse, he was smart. There were also those two big guys, Rick and Jerry, who were always at his side. They were dumb as rocks, but they looked up to Michael as a sort of role model. The worst thing about Michael was that he always preyed on Tiny Joe. Of course, other kids made fun of him for being tiny and looking strange, but Michael wasn't satisfied by words alone. He really struck gold when I, new in the orphanage, stepped in. From that day on, he'd found himself a new victim, especially one he could beat up. With Joe, he had to be careful. A flick against the air here, a tiny push against the wardrobe there, but he couldn't do much more. With me, he didn't have to watch out. He even once said it to my face while Rick and Jerry held me up in front of him. As I said before, Tiny Joe and I explored the rest of the mansion quite a bit. Curiosity was a reason, sure, but sneaking out also meant we'd be away from Michael for a while. Week after week, we'd sneak through empty hallways. Nothing was interesting about most of the rooms we found, 
One day, though, by sheer accident, we found something else. It was a playroom, filled with all sorts of toys and stuffed animals. The walls were a bright green color, and propped trees made it seem like we'd stepped into a magical forest. There was a low light from above without any discernible source. I was utterly overwhelmed by it, and I saw how tiny Joe's eyes grew wide. His mouth stood open and he let out a tiny squeak of sheer surprise before he rushed inside. I followed him right away. The room was amazing, out of this world. It was as colorful and lively as the rest of the mansion was bleak and dull. Everything inside was fitting the forest theme, even the stuffed animals. There were rabbits, foxes, raccoons, squirrels, and many others. I also saw a tent in one corner and a small hut in another. As the two of us played there, we could both see bright lettering on the wall. The Room of Change. It was written in glowing, magical letters. On another wall to our right was a rule board. There were only two rules on it. Number one, don't talk about the Room of Change. Number two, don't take anything from the Room of Change. As we played, we were utterly oblivious to the time that passed. It was the loud, reverberating bell of the mansion that announced it was dinner time. We both looked at each other with shock on our faces before we rushed back to the mansion. Please don't let Madame Rose be there. Please. I recited this over and over again, but as I stormed into the common room, I almost crashed into her. She stood there looking at us in pure outrage, tapping her foot. She gave us a stern lecture in front of everyone else. I could see how some other kids smiled and grinned at our misfortune. We were just playing and... Tiny Joe started to spill the beans, but I was able to cover his mouth before he said anything. You are playing where, Joe? Then she turned and glared at me. And you, Mr. Reinhardt, take that hand away. I want to hear what Joe has to say. I lowered my hand and stared at my feet to avoid her probing glaze. Please remember the rules, Tiny Joe. Don't talk about the room. In, in the hallway. The old lady watched us. But after a few seconds had passed, she nodded and sent us to the dormitory without dinner. It was almost a week before we were able to sneak out again. During that time, Michael's antics got even worse. It got so bad that I snapped at one point. Of course, Madame Rose was in the room next door when it happened. Michael played the victim, and with Rick and Jerry backing him up, he got away. And I was the one who got in trouble. During these first months at the orphanage, I hated them all. The mansion, the other kids, the endless lectures, and especially Madame Rose herself, who always seemed to single me out. The only things I liked were Tiny Joe and the Room of Change. When Joe and I made it to the room a second time, we first thought it was a different room. The walls were bright blue with waves painted on them. Even the floor of the room was a bright blue except for a few carpet islands. There were all sorts of stuffed ocean animals, toy boats, and also a huge palm tree. The only thing that told us it was the same room were the glowing magical letters on the wall. This time, we didn't dare stay as long as before. There was no way we'd risk being late this time, especially since I couldn't risk getting in trouble with Madame Rose yet again. We always kept to the rules. We said nothing about the room, and neither of us took anything. We didn't dare break them. What if the room vanished or the door stayed closed to us forever? The room was a magical place. Each time we went there, it was different. Neither Tiny Joe nor I had any idea how something like this was even possible.
It was by sheer accident that the two of us learned that we weren't the only ones who knew of the room's existence. One day we entered the room and found other people inside it. It was Rudolph and Martin, two boys about my age. They'd recently become frequent targets of Michael's as well. At first we were all surprised to find each other there. I confronted them right away. It was my and Tiny Joe's room, I said. But the two of them replied they'd found it long ago when hiding from Michael. In the end, the four of us agreed on a truce. No fighting or anything like that in the room. To my surprise, though, we all got along great. We even ended up playing together. And when it was time to go back, we all did so as new friends. As we made our way through the long hallways, we all exchanged whispers. Each one of us had his own ideas what the room of change would be like the next time we were there. The moment we returned, our little group was noticed. Michael had his goons on the lookout for us at all times. I could imagine how furious he was to find out that his punching bags had vanished yet again. In the next weeks, things started to get a little bit better. For the first time, I didn't hang out with only Tiny Joe, but also with Martin. I even warmed up to Rudolph. I would find out how wrong I was about him soon enough. A couple of weeks later, Martin wasn't allowed to play with us. He hadn't paid attention during the lectures, so Madame Rose forbid him from hanging out with the rest of us. So that day, it was only Tiny Joe, Rudolph, and me who sent out to find the room once again. When we arrived, the room had magically transformed into a giant farm. One wall resembled a barn, prop trees rested against one another, and stuffed farm animals littered the floor. There was even a plastic paddle tractor standing in the room's center. The moment Tiny Joe saw the tractor, he ignored everything else and raced towards it as fast as his little legs allowed him to. I hadn't even set foot in the room when I saw him in the tractor seat already. He was whooping with joy as he hit the pedals and started driving in a small circle. There wasn't much room to drive it, but Tiny Joe didn't seem to mind that at all. For a moment I watched him before I went to the barn to see if there was any way to enter it. It was right at this moment that the door sprang open behind us. My eyes grew wide when I saw Michael barge into the room, followed by Rick and Jerry. So this is where you've been hiding all that time. Almost forgot about this stupid place. Michael kicked a small stuffed animal aside. Rick and Jerry followed him, both grinning, and started to make a ruckus right away. They both went straight for the prop apple trees and started breaking them apart. Thanks, Rudolph. <laughs> As I looked to Rudolph, I saw him shuffle around, looking down at his feet. The bastard. He betrayed us. I stormed forward to punch him, but suddenly Rick jumped in front of me and pushed me to the ground. Behind him, Jerry picked up some of the stuffed animals. He started tearing them apart while guffawing like an idiot. No! Don't! But when I tried to get up, Rick pushed me down again. From where I was, I saw how Michael's face distorted into a cruel smile. He'd only watched the destruction so far, but now he walked over to Tiny Joe. The small boy was sitting on the tractor, frozen in fear. Now what do we have here? You know, Joe, working on a farm can be quite dangerous. Tiny Joe nodded, but I could see that he fought hard to hold back his tears. Uh, I, I know, Michael. Well then, you should know how easy tractors can get into accidents. With that, he stepped behind the tractor and pushed it forward with full force. Tiny Joe screamed in terror and surprise as the tractor hurtled forward and crashed against the wall. The tractor tipped over, and Tiny Joe landed on the floor crying. Oh no, what happened, Joe? Didn't I tell you to be careful? 
You know what, Joe? I think it's best if we got rid of this thing. With that, he picked up the tractor and threw it to the ground over and over again in front of Joe's eyes. The little boy was completely out of it. He jumped forward and tried to stop Michael from destroying the tractor. The older boy only laughed, almost giddy at Tiny Joe's attempts. Again and again, he pushed him to the ground and in the end kicked him away. Soon the tractor shattered. All the while, I couldn't do a thing. Rick was bigger and stronger than me and had no problem at all pinning me to the ground. Tears of anger streamed down my face as I watched the scene in front of me. Finally, Michael turned to Rick and Jerry. Throw them out. Then he focused on Joe and me. That is the last time you ever come here. With that, Rick and Jerry pushed first me and then Tiny Joe out of the room. The little boy stumbled a few steps before his legs couldn't carry him anymore, and he fell to the ground. It's... it's so... so... so unfair. Why do they have to do this? Why do they have to destroy everything? (laughs) He was out of it, crying hard, breathing heavily, and I could almost hear his heartbeat. I helped him up and led him away from the room and the sounds of the ongoing destruction behind the door. The moment we got back to the common area, Tony looked up and started to grin when he saw that Tiny Joe was crying. What's wrong, crybaby? You said you're so tiny? At that moment, I lost it completely. All the pent-up anger was released as I jumped at Tony and started to beat down on him with my fists. I screamed so loud that Madame Rose heard it from the classroom. She came over and dragged me off of Tony in an instant. What is going on here? Before I could even say anything, She let go of Tony and me and went over to Tiny Joe. He was laying on the floor, not moving. Madame Rose's face was serious in an instant. She picked up Joe, desperately trying to find out what was wrong with him. Finally, she carried him over to the infirmary. I tried to follow her. What's wrong with him, Madame Rose? Stay where you are, Max, and if you don't behave this time, I swear, I swear. When she looked at me, I saw that her lips were quivering, and I could have sworn I saw the hint of tears in her eyes. Without another word, she closed the door behind herself. It was only minutes later that we heard a car arrive outside. Dr. Schmidt entered the room just moments later. Without saying a word, he went straight to the infirmary to take care of Tiny Joe. I'd never been so worried in my entire life. For the next half hour, everyone in the common room was silent. No one even dared to move. Who died? Michael entered the common room. Rick and Jerry in tow, as always. No one said a thing. I'd have run over to him, if not for Madame Rose, who returned to the common room in that instant. She looked different. Tired. Anxious. And most of all, old. Her eyes wandered over the room before they came to rest on Michael, who was still smiling. Tiny Joe had mentioned his name and told her what Michael had done. When she turned to me, I too explained to her that Tiny Joe and I had been playing together. Then Michael and his friends came to beat us up. Michael tried to wiggle his way out, of course, but while he was smart, he was still just a kid. Madame Rose wasn't stupid either. She'd noticed that Michael had been teasing Tiny Joe, but so far she thought it was mostly harmless. After this whole ordeal, Michael was put into the solitary room for almost two weeks. Sure, he studied with us and got his meals with us in the common room, but he wasn't allowed to interact with anyone. He was supposed to learn from his mistakes and even got special lectures and talks from Madame Rose. Many times I could hear her yell at him from behind the door to the classroom. Tiny Joe was transferred to the hospital after a day or two. He'd overexhausted himself, 
and something inside his already broken body had ruptured. After another week, though, Madame Rose informed us that Joe was doing much better by now. He wouldn't be returning to the orphanage, though. While at the hospital, one of the nurses had accepted him as a foster child, and he'd be staying with her from now on. I was a kid, so of course I was sad I'd lost a friend. For a while, I cried in the corner of the common room. Once I'd come down, though, I was happy that he'd found a home, and that he wouldn't be stuck in this place anymore. When Michael was released from the solitary room, he had changed. I'd been terribly afraid as the day approached, but he was quiet and stayed mostly by himself. He talked to Rick and Jerry a few times, but avoided everyone else. He seemed to be scared. Things changed from then on. I stayed friends with Martin and even befriended some of the other boys. It seemed that ever since Michael's constant rule of terror had come to an end, we all started to get along better. How dumb of a kid was I to think that things would change so easily. Ever since Tiny Joe was gone, I hadn't entered the room of change. It felt wrong to go there without him, and I wasn't even sure if the room was still there. After all, we had talked about it, and Michael and the rest had made a ruckus inside. In time, though, I couldn't fight my curiosity anymore. I snuck out of the common room one day and made my way through the hallways of the mansion. It felt strange to do this on my own. At times I turned around to see how far behind Tiny Joe was before I remembered he wasn't with me this time. I felt a mixture of joy and fear when I found the sturdy wooden door. It was still there. I put my hand on the handle, but somehow I was too scared to open the door. What if the room was gone? What if all that awaited me behind the door was another empty, dusty room? I didn't get to think about it for much longer because I soon heard footsteps behind me. When I turned around, I saw Michael, Rick, and Jerry. What a strange coincidence to find you here. What do you want? It's because of you that I got into trouble. What do you mean? You were the one who beat up Tiny Joe. Right then, Rick and Jerry came forward and grabbed me. There was no way I could resist them. Then Michael opened the door to the Room of Change. This time the room was held in a darker, almost nighttime theme. The walls were covered in stars, moons, and other planets. The rest of the room was more mysterious as well. The only stuffed toys were stars and suns. Rick and Jerry dragged me inside. Michael followed after us and closed the door behind himself. By his eyes, I could see how angry he was. He hadn't changed at all. No. If anything, he'd gotten worse. He'd been fuming all that time and must have plotted his revenge ever since he got out of the solitary room. Hold him down! I saw something flash in the low light of the room. Michael was holding one of the knives from lunch in his hand. My eyes grew wide with fear. What are you... But I broke off as he held the knife right in front of my face. What do you think that I'm gonna do? I'm gonna cut you up. His lips twisted into an evil grin. Then he commanded Rick and Jerry. Lift his shirt. The two of them did nothing. I saw how they both looked at each other anxiously, not sure what to do. Didn't you hear me? Lift it up. When he pointed the knife at them, they looked as scared as I did. Without another moment of hesitation, they drew back my shirt to reveal my naked stomach. Michael grinned and then pressed the knife against my skin. He dragged the blade across my stomach, one centimeter at a time. His eyes were glowing with an insane sort of satisfaction as he did. At first, there was a tingling sensation, but then I started to feel a stinging pain. <laughs> I tried to get away, but Rick and Jerry held on to me. No! Michael took the knife away, 
and I could see a tiny red line on my stomach. As I saw it, I started to freak out. I twisted and struggled against my captor's grasp, but there was no hope. Oh, that's just the beginning. Jerry started to protest, but Michael cut him off. Shut up, fat ass! I'll tell you when to... He broke off as all four of us heard noise erupt from the room around us. Then the light of the room became a tad bit dimmer. Who dares to defile the room of change? Then, everything happened at once. Rick and Jerry both screamed up in surprise when they released me. I came tumbling to my feet and was about to rush the door when Michael grabbed my arm. I turned around to get free and froze. I saw a big, towering figure, shrouded entirely in darkness behind Michael. All I could see was an emotionless white mask. Before he could even yell or lift the knife again, the figure grabbed onto him. In surprise, he let go of me as he was dragged backward. The knife fell from his hand and clattered to the ground. The figure pulled him to the back wall. It opened up, and before I could say anything, the figure, as well as a screaming Michael, had vanished behind it. I ran from the room, pushing Rick and Jerry aside. Once outside, I didn't understand what had happened. Had the room punished Michael? It was only seconds later that the door opened again. Rick and Jerry flew out, both screaming and crying, their faces white as sheets. For a short moment, my eyes met the mask of the dark figure before the door to the room closed. As imposing as the figure had been, in the last moment I saw it, it hadn't seemed scary or evil. No. I felt as if it was the embodiment of the Room of Change itself who'd rescued me. That night I slept better than ever before. When I got up the next day, everything was back to normal. Except for one thing. Michael wasn't around. The moment Rick and Jerry saw me, they both hurried away. It was later that day that Madame Rose told us that Michael wouldn't be staying with us anymore. He'd left for a different orphanage that morning. Many of the kids in the room started to smile, and some even laughed in happiness at the thought of being rid of him. Madame Rose's stern, angry glare shut them up in an instant. I was about to say something, but in the end I stayed quiet. I never mentioned what had happened the day before to anyone. After Michael was gone, things changed, but not as much as I'd hoped. The orphanage never became a happy or lovely place. It didn't matter how many friends I made with Madame Rose around. She was as strict and stern as always. For the year and a half I spent at the place, I never developed an ounce of sympathy for the old lady. As time went on, things got better for me. My stay at the orphanage ended when I was fostered by a friendly couple who took care of me ever since. After all that had happened with Tiny Joe and Michael, and especially due to the discipline Madame Rose had hammered into me, I had changed. I learned how to behave. And in time, I grew to love my new adoptive parents. It's now been almost 20 years since I left that place. I'm only bringing this all up because I recently learned what really became of Tiny Joe. Madame Rose had told us he'd found a foster home, but she'd lied to us. The truth was in an old newspaper I'd read while doing research for a project at university. An article mentioned the unfortunate death of a tiny orphaned boy, only nine years old. He'd died at the local hospital due to complications. It was during the same year that we'd stayed at the orphanage together. It was a week later that I paid his grave a visit. I'd brought some flowers, and for a while, I told him about my life. 
I suddenly remembered the old orphanage and decided to visit it as well. Once there, I saw that the place had closed down. At the city hall, I was informed that it had been closed after Madame Rose's death. The old lady had no relatives, and so the property was transferred to city ownership. In the end, no one knew what to do with the old building. Even 20 years ago, it hadn't been in great condition, and now it was almost a ruin. It was during this talk with the city administration that I remembered the Room of Change. It wasn't hard to enter the old place. To my surprise, the front door wasn't even locked. Nothing remained of the mansion's former glory. When I'd been living there, it had been a magnificent place. Now all I could see was dust, dirt, and spiderwebs. The many winding hallways seemed odd and constricting to an adult. The first thing I found was the old common room. There was none of the furniture left, but I was still flooded by nostalgia. Then I went on my search for the room of change. I must have wandered through the hallways for hours before I stood in front of the door. As I opened it, I was greeted by a room that now seemed almost too small. It was as old and musty as all the others. Now, as an adult, I recognized the backdrop on the walls. I smiled as I saw it was a mountainous theme this time. The carpet on the floor was as white as snow, or at least that's what it must have been years ago. A few propped stones were positioned against the walls. I found a single stuffed animal, a mountain bird, discarded in one of the corners. As I picked it up, I noticed something else on the wall behind the backdrop. When I moved the fabric aside, I found a door that was almost perfectly fused with the wall. The door led to a different room. When I moved my flashlight around, I was confused for a moment. And then I realized what this room was. It was a sort of back room, like in a theater. There were countless backdrops there, a variety of props, and an innumerable amount of stuffed animals and toys. As I paced the room, I noticed another door. When I opened it, I stepped into an old bedroom. A quick glance around told me this must have been Madame Rose's former quarters. At this moment, I understood the truth. The room of change was right behind Madame Rose's bedroom. It hadn't been a magical or supernatural place like we kids had thought. It was something the old lady had created for us. She was a stern old teacher and caretaker. She taught us bad kids manners, discipline, and how to behave. I guess it must have been necessary for her to keep up this facade so we'd respect her and even fear her. It was her own way of teaching us. This room, though, proved how dearly she must have loved us deep inside. She must have created this space knowing that we kids would find it eventually. It was a place where we could find the happiness we needed so desperately that she couldn't give us openly. As I walked through the back room looking at all the backdrops, I could only imagine how hard it must have been for this old lady to change the room herself. I could almost see her, long after we'd gone to bed. She was dragging the props and everything else inside, all to change the room yet again into a different, unique oasis. I felt the tears coming to my eyes as I realized what she'd done. Suddenly I remembered the dark figure I'd seen that day. The figure that had saved me and taken Michael away. Searching through the back room proved my suspicions to be true. As I held the mask in my hands, it was clear that this figure had been none other than Madame Rose herself.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.